Welcome to Securing America with me, Frank Afney, the program that's a kind of owner's manual for protecting the country we love against all enemies, foreign and domestic, to the glory of God and his kingdom. We're going to talk about protecting the country we love against all enemies, foreign and domestic, including foreign enemies that are now domestic. And we're going to do it with a man who has repeatedly sworn the oath that I swore on a number of occasions as well to support and defend our Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. His name is Robert Charles. He's no stranger to this program, that's for sure. We're delighted to have him as one of our regulars, in fact. He brings to bear in each of his visits with us uh, his expertise, uh, notably cultivated during his time as a naval intelligence officer, as a congressional counsel in the Reagan and George H.W. Bush White Houses, and not least as an Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of uh, uh, Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs at the, uh, at the State Department under uh, Colin Powell in the George W. Bush administration. Uh, he is, in short, a man of considerable, uh, well, common sense, yes, but also uh, informed detailed experience, and uh, it's a privilege to have him with us. He is the author, among other things, of a wonderful book, Eagles and Evergreens, and he is the spokesman for the terrific organization that uh, represents seniors, um, which I am happy to be a member. That would be the Association for Mature American Citizens. Bobby Charles, welcome back. It's good to have you with us, sir. It is always a privilege, Frank. <clears throat> always. Uh, Bobby, I have a very pressing subject with you. Uh, you have been thinking hard about uh, developments in this country that smack of a kind of throwback to, uh, well, a Stalinesque Soviet era uh, in which uh, we're seeing some uh, reminders in Russia at the moment, uh, notably the murder uh, of one of Vladimir Putin's uh, political opponents, uh, Alexei Navalny, in a prison, no less, uh, in northern uh, <clears throat> Russia, uh, but also mistreatment of uh, other political dissidents and, uh, of course, the war against Ukraine and the like. Um, but talk a little bit about... Um, things that resemble some of those uh, odious activities right here in the United States of America. You know, Frank, thank you for letting me uh, do this. And I also want to say that I need to provide context so people who live in what they are currently experiencing here in the United States understand what the Soviet Union was like. Uh, I spent a lot of time uh, in the Soviet Union and in the Soviet uh, Warsaw Bloc countries, Poland for a couple of months during the period of time when the Soviets were in charge under martial law, also in Czechoslovakia, which is now two countries, and other parts of, of, the, of, the, of what was then the Soviet Bloc. One of the most remarkable things is that kids sitting or standing on a train platform or on a tram platform in those locations, including uh, the Soviet Union, you could have two or three hundred people standing there with their children, not a, not a sound, not a voice, no spontaneity, no laughter. Why? Because fear was the all-encompassing, pervasive reality of their lives. They were fearful of being dragged away. I watched people dragged away in front of me. I couldn't do anything about it. Uh, I was an American at that time. That kind of gave you, uh, with Reagan in charge of, the, of America, that gave you a little bit of a... Uh, a little bit of a buffer, but uh, very sad because fear pervaded everyone, except for the dissidents, uh, many of whom died um, as a result of their convictions. So now we flip the switch, and what has happened in Putin's Russia, and Putin was an old KGB agent uh, who you know, evolved himself, reimagined himself as a Democrat, in fact, being nothing less than that same KGB guy, just uh, remasked. 
Uh, now his primary opponent, who was 47 years old and had seemingly been healthy until he was poisoned some time ago, uh, apparently by Putin, recovered from that, went back to his country, got imprisoned. Uh, when he seemed to be surviving and doing okay in one prison, they put him in a more remote prison where he had to be found because nobody knew where he'd gone, and now they apparently have found him dead. Uh, it doesn't surprise me at all. It's the way Putin behaves. He's sending a signal that says that he's, he's, uh, he's ruthless and he's in charge and don't cross him. Now we turn the channel again and we come back here to the United States and we say, well, look, we, we are a very different country. My goodness, we have freedoms and we're, never would that thing happen here. Uh, never would it happen here. Uh, anything of that nature or communist China couldn't happen here. Well, the irony is that, <clears throat> you know, history is made by inches. Most things that happen that are bad in a country, minus an overthrow that occurs overnight, uh, is actually uh, incremental change. It, they incrementally take your privacy away. They take away your right to free speech, as we saw during COVID. They take away your right to worship. They take. They begin to uh, show the power, the muscle, you know, of the of the state. They're going to go in and they're going to take a former president down with thirty long arms and uh, thirteen hours and and probably a faulty a warrant if there even was a warrant. We don't even know the the, the stuff behind the stuff. And so the Fourth Amendment really won't matter. Anymore. The Fifth Amendment, we then have a bunch of people who saw some of this coming and protested uh, just what seemed to be irregularities in the election on January 6th. And what happened to them? Uh, if you riot, if you throw bricks through things, as in the summer of 2020 or in January of 2021, you should be arrested. You should be prosecuted under existing law for what you did wrong. Okay, no question about it. But a lot of these people, Frank, remain in detention without trial. Some of them have been now, arraigned. You're, you're talking, let me just be clear, you're <clears throat> talking about the people associated with January 6th, not the people who were destroying property <laughs> and killing people, in fact, during yes. the so-called summer of love, right? Yes, well, another one of those summers of love, yeah. It, 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 yes, what, what we're seeing here, and so let's go to that point just for a second. Those people who, who violently rioted in 200 cities around the United States who did billion dollars worth of damage in these cities, including hundreds of millions in places like Atlanta and in mostly minority communities, were actually those who were leftist, violent, so-called peaceful protesters, but they proved to be quite violent. Many of them were let out of prison. Many of them were never put in prison. And now we turn the channel to January 6th, where, again, a political motivation was clearly behind the actions on the mall, 120,000 people protesting, of whom perhaps six or 700 behaved badly on the lawn of the Capitol. But now we're finding, Frank, and I talk every week to members of Congress or their staff, we're actually finding that there are more than 100 uh, files that uh, Congressman Loudermilk has found that uh, may have exculpatory information on them. It appears that many of the facts that were alleged uh, were kind of built into a storyboard that the Democrats pursued in order to make this look like a bigger thing than it actually was, a more planned thing than it was, at least from the point of view of the protesters. And it turns out that the Democrats have the encryption keys to these files and they won't give them to the Republicans in the House. And you're not seeing this on any major news channel, but you're seeing it on your station because it's a fact, Frank. So, and in fact, there are subpoenas out there. Uh, that oversight portion of the oversight community on the Hill has subpoenaed the Department of Homeland Security for information related to a lot of this. And and they haven't even gotten a response to their subpoena in weeks and weeks and weeks. So, you know, what at what point does rule of law go out the window and fear replaces the idea of confidence? And now we have an FBI informant who may have gotten some things wrong and some things right, who's being arrested for having literally uh, badmouthed Biden. Well, you know, it, it reminds me, Frank, of a situation once where Reagan, for whom you worked and for whom I worked, once told a joke. He said, you know, I collect jokes over there in the Soviet Union. And he said, there's a guy who, an American was over in the Soviet Union and said to him, uh, look, to a Soviet citizen, look, I can go in to my president and I can insult him and I can tell him he's doing things wrong and nothing will happen to me. And the Soviet said, I can do the same thing here when Gorbachev was there. He said, you can? He goes, yeah, I can go in and say that your president is doing everything wrong and uh, I can insult him. Uh, <laughs> so main Nothing point, will happen to him. <laughs> Uh, well, let me hold that. Exactly. Ask, ask you to hold that thought, Bobby. That's a wonderful story, and it, it calls to mind the wonderful sense of humor of Ronald Reagan, but also the truth-telling yes. that he often engaged in. Yes. 
with humor as well. Uh, we'll be right back with more with uh, the Honorable Robert Charles, former Assistant Secretary of State and uh, spokesman for AMAC. And you can follow it at amac.us. We'll be right back. This is Frank Afney with the Secure Freedom Minute. The UN Security Council is expected to debate a resolution today offered by Algeria that would demand an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. The Biden administration has signaled it will veto such an initiative. That's the good news. The bad news is that the United States will reportedly offer an alternative, calling for a temporary ceasefire and oppose an Israeli ground offensive against Hamas's last stronghold in Rafah. Like King Solomon's biblical ruling, it would split the difference, but kill the proverbial baby by ensuring Israel's defeat. There is, of course, another option. As former Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper recently pointed out, Hamas could surrender. In fact, on December 20th, Secretary of State Tony Blinken actually called for Hamas to do so, observing, quote, this is over tomorrow if Hamas does that, unquote. The U.S. must ensure Hamas surrenders, not Israel. This is Frank Afton. We're back. We're speaking with one of our regulars and favorite guests. His name is Robert Charles, uh, former Assistant Secretary of State in the George W. Bush administration. Um, and Bobby, uh, you, we're talking about the incremental way in which bad things often happen uh, throughout history. Uh, it, one of the analogies that's often used is um, the phenomenon of boiling a frog by starting him out in a pot of cold water, slowly turning up the heat, uh, he dies without knowing that uh, he's being boiled alive. Whereas you pop him in a boiling pot of water, and boom, he jumps right out. Um, I want to talk with you about some boiling that seems to be going on the uh, slow cooker way uh, in our country from another totalitarian regime, one that, uh, if anything, you could argue um, enormously surpassed the horrors of Joseph Stalin's form of totalitarianism, and that would be the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, not just what they're doing to their own people, which again surpasses even the horrors of Stalin, uh, but the degree to which they are waging relentlessly unrestricted warfare against us. And this is, of course, the subject of a book to which you have contributed through your help with our various uh, <clears throat> Committee on the President Danger China webinars. It's entitled The Indictment, and it's all about the crimes the Chinese Communist Party and its friends have perpetrated against America, China, and the world. And you've been up in Maine, uh, where you reside. Uh, you've been taking a look at a phenomenon there that, like so much of the other things, we try to cover relentlessly on this program, but that escapes much notice elsewhere, yeah. in the media at least. And that is this phenomenon of the Chinese communists um, not only inserting into this country large numbers of their nationals, including a lot who look like People's Liberation Army personnel, but some who are in the business now of mass-producing um, high-potency marijuana uh, in places like uh, the rural parts of Maine. Talk about your insights into what is afoot there and who yeah. is being targeted. You know, so Frank, you have been a clarion call often on things coming, looking around two or three corners and gotten out ahead of it at a time when others have sort of looked away from what seem to be indicators of where some bad thing is coming. This is one of those situations, and you've hit a raw nerve with me. Um, I, I grew up in Maine. I love Maine. Uh, I happen to be in Washington, D.C. at the moment, but I love Maine, and I'm there most of my time. And there are some very intrepid investigative reporters um, who work for a group called The Wire, and then a bunch of others who have been out there on the, in the field looking to see what's really going on with these Chinese who came up into Maine, uh, and they are, they are Chinese-speaking, not English-speaking people who come up into Maine and buy 
these rural uh, houses and then put in 40 amp, 400 amp, uh, you know, they, they draw, they put in, you know, power boards where you're, you're looking at mass amounts of electricity going into this house. Uh, one of them was recently found because tremendous amounts of heat were being generated in the house and we get really cold weather up there. And so someone said, gosh, what is, looks like the house is on fire. And so they went over and looked and lo and behold, well, it turns out they have now found 270 at least of these Chinese grow houses, which are putting mass production, high potency marijuana out into uh, main schools, main communities. And frankly, now we're seeing, as we saw with the legalization of marijuana in Colorado, and, and by the way, this is happening, these kinds of rural outposts of Chinese production of drugs is happening all over the United States. They, they, you get it to be so potent that you get a reverse flow. So now you're getting some of these drugs now shipped probably out of the state, as well as having drugs shipped into the state. As Colorado experienced when they got very high potency marijuana, it started getting shipped to Mexico at the same rate that Mexico was shipping fentanyl up here. So I like to think of this, if you'll step back 20 paces with me, I like to think of this as China chasing America's kids. And we need to be well aware that even in places like Montana and, uh, you know, rural Washington state and rural Maine and, and rural Texas, you are going to find these kinds of outposts of intrusion. And what do I really mean when I say chasing the kids, Frank? I mean, through TikTok, through fentanyl, through uh, THC production, the marijuana production in mass and the illegal, these illegal grow houses, they are making an effort to get into the United States to influence the United States, just like setting up these these Chinese police stations in New York City. Uh, don't think for a minute that there's a coincidence that it's any coincidence that you get these pot grow houses, you get this added fentanyl distribution, you get these Chinese police stations, and you also have a border open where you get increased numbers of military-aged Chinese coming into this country. It's not a coincidence. Put the two together. You know, so I would tell you to close it off, Frank, I believe that the Chinese are making an all-out effort to destabilize from within. I think it's a long-term process, but I think they're turning up the volume because I think they see that we have an administration that doesn't really care. DEA has not. I love DEA, but I think they've been handcuffed. I think they haven't been told by this president, sweep in and shut down these things, and they obviously haven't done it at the border. That's the Drug Enforcement Agency, of course. Yes. Uh, Bobby, there's a lot to tease out here, and, and um, you know, one of the things that you've helped us with, as I mentioned in our uh, Committee on the Present Danger China webinar series is uh, ferreting out these various lines of attack in this unrestricted warfare against our country. These webinars, I honestly believe, folks, are required viewing and encourage you to subscribe to them at presentdangerchina.org. And Bobby, I, as you were talking, I think we need uh, one maybe next week on this sure. very subject of uh, this line of attack, but whether it's uh, fentanyl, which is simply killing a tremendous number of mm -hmm. kids, or whether it's uh, these high-potency marijuana plants that are getting them, uh, well, damaged and hooked up onto drugs of uh, even higher potency, and I want to come back to that point with you, or whether it's the weaponization of TikTok. Uh, you know, it's not just these silly dance videos. We've seen with the big data collection on the one hand and the programming that they're doing the, using addictive algorithm technologies uh, to maximize the extent to which they get their claws into our kids that uh, when they tell them to go out and march uh, for Hamas they go out and march for Hamas. When they tell them you know, that the United you know, States is a horrible place, they think yeah. it is. They think China is a great place, they think yeah. it is. You know, talk a little bit yeah. more about that, if you would, but I, I want to get also your professional expertise on this matter. You, As I said, you were the Assistant Secretary of State in the yeah. Bureau of Narcotics. Narcotics right. Affairs. Yeah. Is this, well, normalization, shall we say, legalization yeah. of marijuana, of however the potency is measured, yeah. in state after state after state across this country. And yeah. the, the argument has been, well, we need the money to fund our schools or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Is this, in fact, a lethal assault on <clears throat> the American people, kids among others? Yeah. And, uh, and can we tolerate 
the Chinese uh, now weaponizing it as they are. So let me let me unpack that both of those issues um, and very and quickly. It, I'm afraid and, we don't have a yeah, lot of Yeah, and time. let me do it as as effectively as I can. Information warfare is something that people should look up and read about. It involves using everything from animation to uh, misinformation to guide you in the direction, perhaps using game theory where they want you, not where you want to be. So you've got to be extremely critical about everything you see, and particularly on TikTok. Second point, drugs. Marijuana, THC, is a Schedule One substance. It addicts people. It is the beginning of a long addiction train, and we have a higher level of addiction, drug abuse, and drug overdose in this country, Frank, than we have ever had. It is not a coincidence that there are pushers, and China are, is among the pushers. They are pushers, uh, and again, it is for the purposes of destroying, not simply making sales or profits. Bobby, thank you so much for your time today. Two really important topics. We appreciate so much your expertise and your visits with us. Come back next week. We'll be right back with more. Stay tuned. Night after night, in cities across the country, black-garbed assailants clash with police in the streets, smash windows, and throw Molotov cocktails in an effort to destroy police stations, federal courthouses, and local businesses, all in the name of anti-fascism. Most Americans are now, sadly, all too aware of the movement known as Antifa. But where did they come from? What do they want? And how do we stop their campaign of violent mayhem? The Center for Security Policy Press is proud to present Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat, this new book looks at the history, ideology, organization, finances, and strategy of Antifa and provides an in-depth analysis for law enforcement officers, policymakers, and the general public. From street fighting tactics of the Black Bloc to fundraising by prominent left-wing foundations, Unmasking Antifa is the go-to guide to understand this elusive and dangerous threat. Get your copy of Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat at Amazon.com. Welcome back, and a very special welcome to our next guest. His name is Stephen Mosier. He is arguably one of, well, not only the uh, most credentialed, but most thoughtful experts on the Chinese Communist Party, what it is doing, what it is doing to its own people, for that matter, but also what it has in mind for Taiwan and others of us. Uh, Steve Mosier is the author, among other things, of The Bully of Asia. He is uh, the founder and president of the marvelous organization, the Population Research Center, and we are delighted to have him with us. Steve, welcome back to Securing America. Good to be here, Frank. You have a, a lot of history, uh, including on the ground in China, and I thought would be the perfect guy to talk to about the threat that we are now watching develop, it appears, to two Taiwanese-controlled islands very close to the mainland coast of China, uh, known as Kinmoy and Matsu these days. Can you give us a little bit of background on the kind of flashpoint these have been in the past and how you see them today? The last battles of the Civil War were fought uh, along the Chinese coast in Fujian and then down in the southernmost province of, uh, of Guangdong. Canton, as we used to call it. And, and of course, the Chinese Communist Party's Red Army won those battles. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek had already taken 400,000 troops to uh, the island of Taiwan, 100 miles away, uh, thinking that was a pretty good moat uh, to hold on to while he, you know, rebuilt his forces for a possible reinvasion of China, which never happened. But he was also able to hold on to some offshore islands. Now, to the north of Taiwan, several hundred miles, is a small island chain, uh, Matsu, three islands. Uh, the Taiwan military maintains about 15,000 troops there. It has really no significant military uh, value. 
uh, to the defense of Taiwan, but it is territory owned by the Republic of China on Taiwan. More important is the island of, uh, of Jinmen, which is right off the Fujian coast. I've been to Jinmen uh, with a, a delegation from the United States some years ago, uh, flew over there, examined the island. The, the Republic of China on Taiwan used to have 100,000 troops on uh, Jinmen, Quimor, which is a fairly small place. Uh, they've reduced the size of the garrison now because for decades we have seen peace uh, across the narrow band of water separating Jinmen from the nearby city. Um, there is a kind of uh, line uh, across which the Taiwan ships would not go and across which the communist uh, ships would not go. Uh, that line is now being violated on a daily basis. Of course, we also hear about incursions into the airspace of Taiwan with any given day, 10 or 20 or 30 planes, uh, a dozen or more ships uh, coming into the, the waters around Taiwan, uh, threatening to overturn the, the, the status quo in that way as well. Jinmen, uh, the island uh, of Quimoy, you can stand on it and see clearly across the bay, uh, the city, which is two miles away. It would be a relatively easy matter for the Communist Party to take back Quimoy. It tried to in 1954 and the first uh, offshore islands crises, and it tried to in 1958 and the second uh, offshore islands crises. Um, any invasion of Taiwan or, or the offshore islands, President Eisenhower said in 1958, would have to run over the Seventh Fleet. And in fact, it was the Seventh Fleet that helped to resupply the island of Quimoy, sitting there so close to the Chinese coast. And at the end of the day, I think it was probably Khrushchev who told um, then leader, Chairman Mao Zedong, who was determined to move against uh, Quimoy and from there use that as a stepping stone uh, to the Pescators, another small island chain between Taiwan and the mainland, and then to Taiwan itself. It's probably Nikita Khrushchev who visited with Chairman Mao and said, you'd better not mess with the Americans because they have nuclear weapons. And Chairman Mao famously responded, what does it matter if we get into a nuclear war and lose 300 million people? Our women will make it up in a generation. Now that's a direct quote. Our women will make it up in a generation. Reportedly, uh, we know from later published memoirs, Khrushchev was shocked by Mao Zedong's absolute reckless disregard for human life. Uh, for a Russian leader, a communist Russian leader, to be shocked uh, by such a statement uh, shows you how over the top uh, it must have sounded. Uh, Khrushchev, I think, thought he was uh, dealing with a madman. That began the process of dissolving the relationship between the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China in this way, because it was reportedly at that moment that Khrushchev decided to break his promise to give Mao Zedong and the Chinese Communist Party nuclear weapons, which he'd earlier promised, because he was afraid that, uh, that Chairman Mao would use them preemptively and drag the Soviet Union into a nuclear war with the United States. Uh, so that's how the, the, the second offshore islands crisis ended in 1958, with Khrushchev withdrawing support and the United States providing support to uh, not just Taiwan, but to also to Quimoy, helping the, the U.S. ships would get as close as they could to the island to allow the resupply ships from Taiwan to land and resupply the garrison there. What would this administration do? Uh, we quite frankly don't know, as as as. Everyone listening knows as well as I, the administration, the Biden administration has spoken out of both sides of its mouth on this issue. Um, Biden will say one thing, yes, we will defend Taiwan. And, and then senior administration officials, of course, anonymously unnamed, will say, no, that's not our policy. Our policy is strategic ambiguity, uh, whatever that is. I, I think it's strategic encouragement to Beijing to imagine that we would not intervene. I think the idea that you would leave any ambiguity about our response just encourages 
So that's where this, we this, this brings me to the, the, the moment, if we can, uh, Steve, that was a very helpful background to the extent that we are watching um, a further ramping up, it appears, by Xi Jinping of pressure on uh, Kim Mun and, uh, and Matsu. Uh, do you think this might well be the precursor to uh, the kind of action that he has threatened to take against Taiwan itself for some time now? If, if you look at how poorly the Shanghai stock market is doing and the Hong Kong stock market, if you look how poorly, uh, how the real estate sector in China is collapsing, how the unemployment rate is is now uh, triple digits, uh, not double digits, but running at 20, 30%, 50% for the youth. If you look at all the economic indicators going downward, uh, he would probably relish uh, right now at this juncture, a foreign adventure. Now, would he, could he take Gene Men and stop there and declare victory, uh, you know, another step forward in the reunification of the motherland? Uh, perhaps. But if he took Gene Men easily, would he then be encouraged to move on quickly to uh, to Taiwan itself? Um, absolutely. So I think we're we're in very perilous times here. I do think that Xi Jinping, who is uh, who, if he could vote, would be voting for a second term for Joseph Biden, um, thinks that the window of opportunity for an invasion of Taiwan is closing, and may close um, rather dramatically uh, on January twentieth of next year when uh, an, another president is installed in the White House, whose name we're all familiar with. This could well be. The question then is, is the positioning of the forces that uh, Xi has amassed, uh, the readiness of those forces, the capability of those forces, in your estimation, sufficient at this point uh, in addition to external conditions, uh, his own domestic problems, yes, but also uh, what's happening in the United States, the distractions that he has created elsewhere, that this um, move of one kind or another, maybe it's a blockade rather than a full-on invasion, but that it might happen in the very near future. It certainly could happen uh, this coming spring, early summer. Uh, when the waters of the Taiwan Straits are relatively calm, and it would be easy to use car ferries to move across armored brigades across that open stretch of water uh, to land on the beaches of Taiwan. Or falling short of that, just simply a blockade to cut the island off from the trade, which is its lifeline to the world, obviously. Um, and there are a lot of other things going on here, though, and we have to consider the fact that uh, there are agents of the Chinese uh, Communist Party pouring across the border, agents, uh, provocateurs, saboteurs, uh, individuals who would uh, sabotage the uh, power grid in the event of a conflict, sabotage our uh, energy production. Uh, we also have to to understand that um, that uh, uh, China has um, a flotilla of ferries that it could use to move across large numbers of troops in a fairly short period of time. Um, so, and, and then we have the cyber attacks, which uh, Christopher Wray, the FBI director, belatedly began warning us about uh, in a hearing last week, uh, saying that the, the level of cyber attacks uh, has increased dramatically over the last few months. That may be a sign, a precursor of, of aggressive action towards Taiwan, because imagine taking down the power grid, uh, taking down the internet, uh, compromising our communication systems uh, at the same time that a blockade or an invasion occurred in Taiwan, I believe would would cripple our response. Uh, we're simply not prepared. Uh, the woke military uh, is simply not prepared at this point in time to deal with uh, those challenges. We have to leave it at that. Thank you so much for your time today, my friend. Godspeed and the important work you're about. Keep it up and come back to us soon. We'll be right back. Stay tuned.
This is Frank Afney with the Secure Freedom Minute. The UN Security Council is expected to debate a resolution today offered by Algeria that would demand an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. The Biden administration has signaled it will veto such an initiative. That's the good news. The bad news is that the United States will reportedly offer an alternative, calling for a temporary ceasefire and oppose an Israeli ground offensive against Hamas's last stronghold in Rafah. Like King Solomon's biblical ruling, it would split the difference, but kill the proverbial baby by ensuring Israel's defeat. There is, of course, another option. As former Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper recently pointed out, Hamas could surrender. In fact, on December 20th, Secretary of State Tony Blinken actually called for Hamas to do so, observing, quote, this is over tomorrow if Hamas does that, unquote. The U.S. must ensure Hamas surrenders, not Israel. This is Frank Afton. Welcome back. We're delighted to be able to say welcome to Bill Walton. He is one of our favorite guests. We have the privilege of catching up with him about this time every week. We sometimes have to move it about, and he is invariably extremely accommodating, for which we're very grateful. He is, of course, the host of his own program, so he knows what you have to do to manage guests. He is the uh, proprietor of The Bill Walton Show, and you can find it on uh, other places, uh, the CPAC channel. And CPAC is very much on the mind at the moment because that's where we're going to be with Bill this week. I hope you will be as well. It's going to be a really big shoe, as it's all of been used to say. I guess I'm dating myself. Bill, welcome back. It's good to have you with us. Talk to us a little bit about um, CPAC. What's in store? Um, what role you're playing in it and uh, why people should come? Well, I got the joke, Frank. I've always wanted to be on the Ed Sullivan show. I'm, I'm dating myself. But, you are uh, dated is, too, my friend. <laughs> this is this now that he's gone. This is even better. Okay, um, thank you. I see, appreciate that. It's kind of vaudeville in a sense, please. Well, it's kind of vaudeville. I don't know where our dancing girls are. Or the guy spinning. I don't plates, either. We're Been doing looking all for those that. dancing girls all my yeah. life. <laughs> yeah, among the other things I do, I'm on the executive committee at CPAC, and we've got our big meeting coming up this week at the Gaylord. Uh, in the uh, D.C. area, and it's it's going to be a very good program. We've got, of course, we're going to be wrapping up on Saturday, not wrapping up, but Saturday during, during the day, we'll have Donald Trump. Uh, CPAC over, over time, I'm not sure many people are aware of this, has really moved its, its sites outside the United States to begin working with the freedom movement in, in really dozens of countries. And there's going, to be, there's going to be an international theme to this. The title of the conference is Where Globalism Goes to Die. And we're beginning to think that we might be the anti-Davos, the anti-World Economic Forum, and really aimed at, uh, at people and freedom in a way that uh, uh, Davos is just the opposite. Uh, the, what a great the, idea, Bill. And, and let me just say, I, one of the things that has been done to make all that possible as you know so well, is uh, yeah. these CPACs in various countries all over the planet. And it's been really extraordinary to see what uh, the team has done. And, and, and clearly now the inspiration that it is giving to those conservative movements and freedom fighters uh, across the globe. Well, we've held CPAC conferences in Japan, Mexico, Hungary, uh, my um, Brazil, yeah, and what Israel, and what's happened is we've developed strong relationships with the president of those countries, and uh, the uh, couple, a couple of the speakers this week will have the president of El Salvador, who you know is doing everything to get rid of the gangs in El Salvador and make it a livable country again, and then the newly elected president of Argentina, uh, 
uh, Javier Millet, and who's just a fantastic, fantastic guy, trained as an economist, also is a lead singer in a Rolling Stones cover band. So a very colorful guy, very strong communicator, and uh, he'll be speaking uh, Saturday afternoon. I think we're going to wind up the conference from him. And then we've got an international conference as a, also part of what the proceedings. And one of the things that I'm, I'm thrilled to announce, or it's been announced, but we're having a panel on Saturday morning. We kick off Saturday with a very strong panel on the World Health Organization and the United Nations uh, climate change agenda, and both of which are massive threats to uh, sovereignty, American sovereignty, but also the sovereignty of all the other freedom-loving uh, countries in the world and freedom-loving people. And we've got an outstanding uh, panel, which uh, I think, who's our lead-off uh, speaker? I think it'd be Frank Gaffney. No, I don't think the lead-off, actually. I think it's uh, <laughs> well, Margaret no, Byfield, I, who's a well, very let's, strong... Let's put you in the cleanup, let's put you in the cleanup I, position. I, I'm those, proud to be in that cleanup position. For, yes, those, for those of us who wants to see how the sausage made, I'm, I go on Frank's show, and Frank comes on my show, and we spent an hour discussing the order of the speakers of our Saturday. Anyway, we've got... Uh, We've got uh, Margaret Byfield, who's heading up a, a, a think tank or an action shop, really, to uh, preserve property rights in America, uh, which are also under attack. Uh, and, and then we have uh, Brandon Part of Weichel. the UN climate agenda. Well, yes. And we, we, we can, uh, we've got Brandon Weikert coming, who's a tremendous young uh, um, national security foreign policy expert, written books on on Iran, he's also covered the Chinese bioweapons uh, threat, and uh, he's going to be—he's going to be talking with us about the uh, World Health Organization. And he's done a lot of work to, to uh, show how the Chinese have, have really, in effect, that you can't—that doesn't show up on the website. But China's got a massive influence at WHO, and it's an invisible footprint. And he's done a lot of work to uh, to reveal what's actually happening there. Yeah. You know, I, I'm so delighted you introduced me to him. We did actually an hour with uh, Brandon uh, that aired uh, last night, and I'm so pleased that, uh, you know, this guy is part of the team because you're absolutely right. He is a utility infielder, and I know his contribution in particular to this uh, insight into the WHO will be hugely important, but he's he's got so many other areas of expertise as well. But Bill, just staying with WHO for a moment, because I I know that you have become a subject matter expert on it, uh, and I'm so grateful it. for you doing that. This um, is one of those things that will actually determine, to my way of thinking, whether CPAC is in fact a place where globalism goes to die, because there is an opportunity for us, well, maybe to kill what the World Health Organization is up to in terms of infringing upon our sovereignty and, and really advancing a whole idea of global governance, as the Chinese call it, uh, that is antithetical to our constitutional limited form of government that CPAC especially, you know, prizes. But um, we also have this problem that we're going to find ourselves, I think, um, having new agreements uh, adopted that we can't stop unless we really get organized and, and better yet, if we fail to stop it, uh, to make sure that we get out of the WHO and stop funding what it's up to. Bill, we have to take a short break. I want to come back to those points with you and talk a bit about why that is necessary for, well, our sovereignty, yes, but also our personal sovereignty. Uh, that of our states, I mean, all of these things are really on the line, and it's unbelievable how far advanced this has gotten with so few people knowing about it. So praise God for CPAC and your help with it. We'll be right back with Bill Walton. Stay tuned for more right after this. We're back. Bill Walton is in the house. 
a former, and I like to think recovering master of the universe and his previous life at Allied Capital on Wall Street. He has also been a leader and is a leader of the conservative movement, notably in his role previously as the president of a wonderful organization of which I'm proud to be a member, the Council for National Policy, and not least what he is now doing with the American Conservative Union, the host of CPAC. 2024. Coming up at the Gaylord Hotel this week, I believe it is still possible to get tickets to come see people like Donald Trump and Javier Millet and so many others, including Bill Walton. Well, we, and we've me. got Steve Bannon and we've got, uh, it, it, it's also a, a showcase of all the leading candidates to be VP uh, uh, VP nominee with uh, Donald Trump. And so right. all the all the major speakers and that all the major uh, players in that category will also be there, and this right. will be their. Uh, and uh, their the object straw. of a straw poll that uh, yeah. is always much watched. Uh, I think by the VP straw poll is going to be more interesting than the president's straw poll. <laughs> I, I, I thought they were skipping the president one, but whatever, yeah, it's going to be very, well. very important, I think. But Bill, uh, let's just continue this conversation because I think one of the things that I so admire about you is that when you focus on a topic, you really go to school on it. You do your homework, you become a subject matter expert, it seems often overnight. But uh, tell us why all of us should be doing the same with respect to this outfit, um, by the way, uh, that played a rather prominent and very, very unhelpful role in the recent COVID pandemic. Well, the, the the World Health Organization was formed in 1948. It's a subset of the uh, United Nations. It's sort of a, a shadow uh, organization of that. And for years, it's been well-meaning, but sort of a mess. They've had all sorts of projects they've been involved in, never really made a lot of difference. Uh, but they came into uh, prominence during the COVID period, during the beginning with the lockdowns and the, not just in the United States, but worldwide, and they became a real player in uh, setting policy and, and, and almost a, ch a champion of the policy. lockdowns, as I recall. Yeah. Champion, champion of masks, champion of vaccines, champion of mm -hmm. uh, social distancing. Um, uh, champion of the Chinese Communist lockdown, Party. Championing Bill. locking down Australia, New Zealand. I mean, they were they were into all the bad ideas. And you you ask yourself, and you talk about my deep dives. You know, you say, well, what is it? Where what? Well, it turns out it's got a it's got a budget of about six billion dollars. And Donald Trump uh, attempted, and I believe he succeeded in his last year of the presidency, to zero out the United States contribution to the WHO. Um, but then when Biden came back in, they restored the funding with a vengeance. And I think in the last year, it was about a billion dollars out of a six or seven billion dollar budget. Interestingly. Uh, the number two contributor to the WHO, or number two or three, is the William and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is uh, ominous. And you go down the list of contributors, and it's a kind of a polyglot. Germany's been involved in uh, activities, but one of the things that doesn't show up in the funding is China's role with the WHO. Uh, the president of the WHO, Tedros, uh, and I'm going to let you handle the last name, Frank, uh, is a is a protege of President Xi of China and is quite influenced by, uh, well, that's putting it mildly. Yeah, I'm not, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not least. And some say a terrorist as well in Ethiopia, where he was in the government under some yeah, very... So, so so they they had all these ideas about what countries ought to do, and people listened to them. And the power players in all the governments, not just the United States but worldwide, liked it, liked their power, and were looking for a, a return to their glory days. And the, what's afoot now is that there's a massive uh, rewriting of the United of the WHO charter, and also the relationship that the individual member companies would have with it. And the, just, just putting a, a summary on it, it's very complicated, but um, the summary is uh, they want to change the relationship the United States have has with uh, uh, the WHO from an advisory um, capacity to a, a role where they could actually mandate the kind of measures that the United States should take in the event of a, of a, of a health crisis. Now, the thing to keep in mind here is that 
the, uh, the people who would control our lives have redefined health crisis to include the climate crisis and to include basically anything that you can think of that would um, require centralized controls. And, and, gun violence. And gun Reproductive violence. Reproductive rights. Uh, well, Immigration. Yeah, the Second Amendment would be under attack because we know that guns guns are used in, uh, in, in killing people, and, uh, but they're also used in defending yourself, which seems, seems to be something they overlook. This, this is really the kicker, if I can. It's, it's not just that this guy, Tedros Ghebreyesus, who made a complete hash up of the pandemic that afflicted us for a couple of years recently, but he also would have the authority to dictate what we must do about it. And that's where well, that's, many of the horribles that you're talking about kick in. That, that's the it? essential point. The power resides in one person. And whether it's Tedros, who, who's arguably a stooge of President Xi of China, or anybody else, we never, as a, as a free people, as a, you know, presumably part of a constitutional limited government, government, want to put power in one person's hand, let alone somebody in Geneva. Yeah, completely unaccountable. States, uh, completely <laughs> unaccountable and, yeah. and reports to no one, really. You look at the board and it's 35-member board that... Um, is typical of most 35 member boards. Nobody's in charge except the CEO. Uh, but in so, this case, I, I think he reports to Xi Jinping, the emperor well, of China. That, and, uh, that's a particularly scary you know, in, in the in the in the corporate world, which I spent a, a lot of time in. There's the organization chart, which shows up on paper, and that's the formal chart. And then there's the informal organization chart, which nobody sees. Yeah. And in this but case, operates. the one that matters for the WHO is the informal organization chart. And I think those relationships do matter. And, and we need to be concerned about China's agenda. Uh, we will be exploring China. all of this, Bill, on Saturday morning at 8.50 for about 25 minutes with this outstanding team led by you. And I couldn't be more excited to participate in it. But more to the point, folks. The World Health Organization will be a very, very important focus of, I think, just about the entirety of the CPAC conference, as well as a parallel meeting that's taking place of um, prominent doctors, uh, the so-called International Crisis Summit. You're going to want to watch both. I hope you do that, and then I'll hope you come back and watch more of us next time. Until then, go forth and multiply.